Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the sea and saw a woman on the water. Well, I believe that with the exception of recent COVID-19 restrictions, I do not know a more mobile time in human history than right now. We not only use planes, trains, and automobiles, but also ships, boats, and ferries to see people and places that previous generations only read about. God is bringing the people of the world to our doorsteps as students, businessmen, and entrepreneurs come from all over the globe to test the waters of our economy and our educational systems. The last 100 years has enabled radio and aviation to transport the missionary message into places that previously required days of travel on foot and by dugout canoes. When you see the word foreigners behind me, do not think of this as racist or derogatory in any way. It is simply an acknowledgement that the world has become flatter and previous barriers to interaction between cultures is being dis diminished. This ought to excite us. Not for the tourism opportunities or the spreading of the American way of life, but for the uh, advance of the gospel to all peoples. There's one word that appears five times in today's chapter. So I encourage you to look at Acts chapter 8, and I will give you the five verses. In verse 4, verse 12, verse 25, verse 35, and verse 40. 
What word appears in all five of those verses? Preaching of the gospel. Evangelizing. The preaching of these verses did not happen in a church building like ours. The good news was being proclaimed by ordinary people in ordinary places as they did ordinary life. As a matter of fact, even Saul spreads the gospel without trying to do so. See, this first paragraph of Acts chapter 8 is for us a lesson in unintended consequences. I wonder how many of us have seen an inexperienced person try to extinguish a fire. What happens when water is thrown on the grease fire? The water distributes the fuel so the fire spreads. What happens when a person swings a blanket at a brush fire? The force of the air scatters the embers, causing scores of little fires to ignite the fuel that is around them. And similarly, young Saul, in these first three verses, attempts to extinguish the flames that appeared at Pentecost. But his very actions work against his intentions. My parents who are with us this morning, can attest that when I was six, I made a similar mistake to young Saul. By the age of six, I had learned how matches work, but I did not yet understand the nature of flammable fuel. As I recall, and they probably could clarify my recollections, we had just moved to a larger home in Derby, Kansas. And my parents were hosting a housewarming party and encouraged us children to play outside. We were playing under the cedar trees in our backyard when I thought we should have our own housewarming. So I struck a match, dropped it on the cedar needles, that had fallen under the trees. And you can imagine what happened when that spark fell on that fuel. I don't know what was warmer, the trees that ignited or my buttocks that received a significant massage to remind me that that is an unacceptable use of matches. The loving massage worked because I have not started an unintended fire since. See, Saul tries to contain the message, to squash the message, but what he does is he scatters the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I look at back to chapter 7, verse 58, and in this first part of verse 1, I read that persecution could not silence the gospel. Saul became identified early on with this Christian movement. He was present when Stephen was stoned. 
And now he becomes the face of the persecution movement. I noticed that this persecution wasn't ordinary persecution, but the scripture describes it as a great persecution. Verse 3 clearly describes this persecution as ravaging. It happened in their own homes. It included both men and women being dragged off from their homes and their families to prison. Now, I don't deny for one moment that frivolous lawsuits are being filed that are unfriendly to our faith. But so far, our country has been spared this level of persecution described here that happened around Jerusalem in the first century. No one's coming into your homes, ravaging your homes, and dragging men and women away to prison for our faith. But that's what happened in Jerusalem in the first century. Luke is able to record this event in this way because by the time he wrote the book of Acts, about 15 years after the events actually happened, the gospel had not been extinguished. It had spread because persecution could not silence the gospel. I also see that scattering could not silence the gospel. The first century antagonists had not yet learned the law of containment. I have a friend named Stephanie who fights forest fires. She is not a big Smokey the Bear. As a matter of fact, she has a build similar to Jen Harshman. But Stephanie is fearless. Earlier this year, she was sent to Alaska to fight forest fires. And her job was to clear the fuel and to set backfires because firefighters have learned that preventing the spread or the scatter is often the fastest way to contain a disaster. Similarly, law enforcement and urban planners have found that containment in certain districts or housing projects is the most effective way to reduce the spread of crime. But the early church had not yet learned that lesson. Saul and his buddies were persecuting the church so that it was scattering. But the scattering could not silence the gospel. It could not squash the gospel message. It had the opposite effect. And Luke is able to record this description because the gospel had not been contained. It had spread. And then in verse 3, I see that prison could not silence the gospel. I have frequently been amazed at how persecution intensifies the spread of the gospel. Outlawing the gospel and imprisoning believers rarely works. Much of our New Testament was written when Paul was imprisoned. And just as Jesus said to the disciples, it is to your benefit that I go away. Because if I go away, each of you will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, it was to our benefit that Paul would be imprisoned. 
because instead of being one person preaching in one place, Paul was able to write letters that were copied and distributed that we have. Much of our New Testament was written when Paul was in prison. Imprisoning Paul allowed him to write letters to more places than he could ever visit in one lifetime. Prison could not silence the gospel. In 1993, I got the opportunity to travel to Russia shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And as a young preacher in my 20s, I was impressed by the testimony of a lady named Lena. Lena was a woman in her late 80s who came to accept Christ while Christianity was against the law in the Soviet Union. And she told us how she and two others, because any larger of a group would draw attention and suspicion of the party, so she and two others went to the river after dark, and her witness chopped a hole in the ice. Then she was baptized to profess the sincerity of her faith in her Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke is able to record this description because the gospel had not been silenced, it had spread. And as Saul is accidentally spreading the gospel, the next section of this chapter describes an intentional outreach to the north of Jerusalem. Philip spreads the gospel to Samaria. And as he is spreading the gospel to Samaria, Samaria in relationship to Jerusalem may not make sense to those of us in Chase County, Kansas. So allow me to draw the picture this way. Jerusalem was located about right there, and Samaria was up here. So the gospel was spreading to the north, and he took the message to the north. And after he went and preached in Samaria, he went back to Jerusalem, which was where he was staying at the time. However, Philip's home was right here in Caesarea. Now, it would make sense after he went to Samaria, when he was done preaching there, he would just go home to Caesarea. But we will see in the later part of this chapter that he went back to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, he went on the Gaza Road down south. And after the events that we see, the last verses of chapter 8 tell us that he went along the coast preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel has spread to the north, the gospel is going to spread to the south, and the gospel is going to spread along the sea coast in front of us. Now before we get there, we need to first see that the witnesses, the believers, were scattered outside of Jerusalem, and they landed in the area of Samaria. Now this tells us that he went down to Samaria. But I just said that Samaria was north. Down is an elevation, not a geography. And so he went down from Jerusalem into 
the land of Samaria. Now, there are several points of trivia that come to mind when we hear Samaria. The good Samaritan tells us that it was unexpected that a Samaritan would assist a Jew. They had their own culture, and they were not known to be friendly to the Jewish people. The woman at the well was a well in Samaria. And what does that tell us about the Samaritan culture? Loose morality was a reality in that area. And the woman at that well described their religion as being similar to the Hebrews, but different. Your people worship here in this way. Our people worship there in that way. They worshiped, but they did it in a different place and in a different way. So they were religious people, but their religion was not the religion of the Hebrews. The attitude of Jesus' followers towards these Samaritans probably meant that they would not migrate to Samaria if they had any other option. For Jewish people to go up there, the persecution must have been awful. But yet, they went. Yet, Jesus challenged his disciples' attitude towards those Samaritans. And because Jesus had challenged the attitude of his disciples, I'm sure that attitude got passed down to Philip in a manner that now Philip is willing to go to Samaria to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Philip goes to this area, and as he uh, uh, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, his preaching, his witness, was then supported by many, many signs. Now, notice the order of events. Philip spoke first, and then that was accompanied by signs. He testified first, then we see exorcisms, healings. People need forgiveness before they need their best life now. And the proclamation of the gospel was first in Philip's mind. And this seems to be backwards of the modern signs and wonders crusades. I've seen posters around the world in parts of Europe, in parts of uh, Southern Asia, that brag about a miracle crusade coming to town. And the miracles is the draw, and maybe they'll hear the gospel of Jesus Christ as an afterthought. And that's totally backwards of the way uh, Philip went to Samaria. We just noticed last week the story of Stephen. And Stephen said how much more important the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was central to his message. So the witnesses scattered to the north. Philip went to the north. He preached, which was supported by signs and exorcisms and healings. And then we also see that Simon, a magician who placed his faith, was then discipled by Peter and John. Simon was, according to the text in front of us, some sort of a local celebrity entertainer. And this Simon, this local celebrity, believed 
and professed his faith by being baptized, according to verse 13. But the Samaritans were guilty of an error that we still do today. Celebrities are put in the Christian spotlight before they have a chance to grow and mature. And so Peter and John are sent to help mature young Christian Simon, although he was already a local celebrity. Peter and John help him to get grounded in the teachings of Jesus because he needed more teaching to build upon his belief and his baptism. And Simon, as he's listening to the message of Peter and John, then he, he, he notices what he sees as a shortcut towards notoriety. And he tries to obtain this notoriety apart from prayer, the word, and the maturing of the spirit. Peter and John brought to him the word. Peter and John were teaching him how to pray. Peter and John were teaching him the scriptures. But instead, he says, here's a shortcut that's going to get me to notoriety. And how many of us tried to take that shortcut to become famous? And so Peter and John say, wait, 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 wait a minute, Simon. You're looking for a shortcut that doesn't exist. Now, Peter and John remember what had just happened to Ananias and his wife three chapters earlier. And so they make it very clear. Simon, there are no shortcuts. We've got to do things the right way in the right time. And God will bring maturity. Well, I notice in verse 24 that Simon receives their correction. And because he receives their correction, he appears to repent. And he commits in verse 24. He says, okay, guys, I will do this the right way. Pray that I grow. So when Peter and John then are called back to Jerusalem... Philip is called out on another short-term mission trip. Remember the map? He went up to Samaria, back to Jerusalem, and instead of going home to Caesarea, he gets called to spread the gospel to the south. And as he heads towards the south, he then meets a unique individual. He meets a man who is reading the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, notice the frame of reference as it talks about this man. For just as the, each of the Gospels has a unique way of referring to Christ, Matthew refers to him as Messiah, one of the Gospels refers to him as the Son of Man, one refers to him as the Son of God, because each of the Gospels is trying to tell a particular story. And because each of the Gospels is trying to emphasize something unique, Scripture often uses specific references. The woman at the well is never named. We just know that she was a woman at the well. Many times when Jesus would give a parable that was supposed to be applied broadly, he simply says, a certain man did this. Or a certain man did that because he did not get too specific because he wanted us to think, hey, that might be me. So the way that the scripture uses references like that teaches us something about the point that is being made. And here, the way Luke refers to this man, first we are told that he is from Ethiopia or from Africa. 
Second, we are told that he is a eunuch. And third, we are told that he is a dignitary serving Queen Candace. Candace, in that part of the world at that time, was a title very similar to Queen Mother. So this eunuch was in service to the Queen Mother of his region, just as many people are now mourning Elizabeth in another part of our world as the Queen Mother. Now, there is nothing in this description, an Ethiopian, a eunuch serving the Queen Mother, there is nothing that would make a Hebrew person think, you know, he's likely to become my brother in the faith. Now, since eunuch is not a word that we use in everyday language, allow me to clarify gently. And now a lot of mothers and fathers just get nervous about what I'm going to teach their children. A eunuch was a man who could be trusted implicitly with the king's harem. Let me point you to Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, which states, Some are infertile by birth, some are celibate by choice, and some are surgically altered. And if either the first or the third option pertain to this man, his condition of being infertile or surgically altered would prevent him from ever participating in the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. According to Deuteronomy 23, 1, this man was literally cut off from the assembly of the Lord. There was something about the Hebrew scriptures, though, that raised this man's curiosity. Although he could never fully convert to become a Hebrew, there's something about the Hebrew scriptures that drew his attention. And so he's reading in the prophecy of Isaiah. And Philip comes alongside and masterfully starts exactly where the man is in his faith journey and leverages his curiosity about prophecy into a gospel conversation about Jesus, according to verse 35. This is witnessing 101. Start with the person where they are, where they have their questions, as we sang, just as I am, just as he or she may be. We start there. We point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as uh, Philip then explains the gospel of Jesus Christ to the man in verses 36 through 38, the gospel is then professed in a pool of water. Philip judges Sir Eunuch's repentance to be genuine. We don't know the man's name. We know his situation in life is all that Luke tells us. And this tells us that the man sees water and he says to Philip, Hey, look, there's water. What would prohibit me from being baptized? And Philip says, Well, nothing. Here, let me go get a cup full and I'll come back to the chariot. Now, what the scripture says is they went down into the water. And so this at least implies that they went into the water and Philip either poured water over his head that was in the water, or immersion. He went into the water. And so this is, uh, it, it's, it's implied 
but the amount of water is significant. Because the man is not about to taste a little bit of grace, the man is about to experience overwhelming grace. I specifically asked Jan to sing the Just As I Am and I Come Broken medley today because of these three verses. Now, you've probably heard that the early Olympic Games were performed in the nude. Did you know that baptisms were often usually done natural? And by entering the water this way, the surgery that would have prohibited this man from temple life was on display to Philip and anyone else who may have been coming down the road at that moment. The man, as he entered into the water, is in essence saying, I come broken. Just as I am is cut off from the fellowship of God's people. As a matter of fact, he went into the water broken and alienated from the people of God. He came out fully restored and rejoicing in full fellowship with the body of Christ. His brokenness did not keep him from tasting full grace. And my friend, your brokenness does not keep you from tasting the fullness of grace. For when we come to him broken, he restores. When we come to him alienated from his people, he puts us into full fellowship with his spirit. And we must continue to come to Jesus just as we are, admitting our sinful brokenness if we ever want to be restored to God, to his family, and to his inheritance. The gospel was found in the prophecy. It was professed in a pool. And then we also see that the gospel was preached along the coast. The scripture tells us that Philip, after they came out of the pool of water, he suddenly found himself in a new community. As he found himself in a new community, um, it, he, he was no longer on the southern road, but he was actually in what is currently referred to as the Gaza Strip. And he finds himself in this town of Azotus. And rather than just heading back to Jerusalem, or rather than just camping out in Azotus, Philip then heads along the Mediterranean towards a city that was built by Herod the Great to honor Caesar Augustus. Fast forward to Acts chapter 21, and we find Philip living in Caesarea with his four adult daughters. So if Philip was in Jerusalem, he gets sent to Samaria. It would have been a short trip for him to go home in Caesarea. But the fact that he even goes down the southern road to Gaza is an out-of-the-way obedience. It is true that the Great Commission in Matthew says that as you are going, you are to make disciples. But there are times when God calls us out of our way to participate in world evangelization. As we as a church commit to everyone, everywhere, starting here, I am praying that the Lord would call some of us 
from Chase County to surrender to cross-cultural ministry. As we are going and as we are heading home, we need to make disciples. But some of us may be called to go out of our way to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, as we travel back from the first century Israel to 21st century Chase County, there are three applications that I want to make perfectly clear this morning. The first is, all cultures need Jesus. Whether we go to them or they come to us, people from all cultures need Jesus more than anything else. They don't need our money. They don't need our American politics. They need Jesus. Secondly, never underestimate the power of the gospel. See, Saul thought somehow the gospel could be contained, it could be squashed, it could be silenced. And they soon found that it had spread. Saul assumed it could be persecuted away. The Samaritans found that it was superior to their cultural religion. This political pundit found the gospel worthy of his immediate obedience. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to change of life. And thirdly, the gospel is. What is the gospel? You've heard me use the word preach the gospel. You've heard me use the word gospel and over and over again. What is gospel? God, the gospel is good news that all dead sinners can be brought to eternal life through God's grace that was fully purchased by Jesus' death and resurrection. Though we are dead, though we are sinners, all of us are capable of being brought to eternal life solely because of what Jesus did on a cross and when he came out of that tomb three days later. See, the gospel was relevant for the pseudo-religion of the Samaritans. And the gospel is good news for your good old boyfriends. The gospel was relevant for politically aligned Africans and it is good news for your neighbors who find their identity in their politics or in their race. The gospel was relevant to sailors, dock workers, and fishermen along the coast. And it is good news for all classes of people today. Our mission is to proclaim the good news to everyone, everywhere, starting here. And we may spread to the north, we may get sent to the south, but wherever we find ourselves, our mission is to preach the good news and to trust that he will use his gospel to transform people from the inside out. That transformation is the core to the song that will be our response today. It's number 309. If you want to look up the notes in your book, or you can direct your attention to the screen.